So it was kind of that kind of inspiration for my channel. So that's why I ended up being like, I want to share more about my life, my my career choices, and of course, knowledge about pathology, not just what pathology is, but also the practice of pathology. So that's how I got the channel name, H&E Life. I didn't want it to be just a H&E teaching channel. I wanted to be like a H&E follow me through my career journey channel. <laughs> Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strink. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. There are many different ways to advocate for pathology, whether that be online, in person, or even in publications. My guest today is Dr. Cindy Wong. Dr. Wong is a GI pathologist, and she's also the creator of the YouTube channel, H&E Life. Now, while the purpose of this channel is to advocate for pathology, it is a little different than most others and we'll discuss how she talks about her own experiences as a resident, a fellow, and now as an attending to help medical students get an idea of what it's like as a practicing pathologist. All right, here's Dr. Cindy Wong. So I, I, I wanna go kind of all the way back to college with you and we, we can start from there and, and go into, into the, the present. So now going into college, I know you were deciding between medicine or you know going for a PhD in some kind of scientific research. Mm-hmm. And then you ended up choosing to study biological engineering at the time. I'm curious about that decision. How, how did you make that decision? So, <laughs> to be honest, when I went into college, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. But um, because I have the Asian influence behind me, uh, you know, it was deemed good to be either a doctor, or an engineer, or a scientist. So I basically picked some kind of engineering. I actually started with chemical engineering before I switched to biological engineering because I was like, well, if if MD and PhD fails, I could still make a good living off of chemical engineering. And I switched to biological engineering uh, when a friend convinced me that it's easier to do the pre-med uh, requirements as a biological engineer than a chemical engineer, and that, and that that was easy enough for me to switch over. Okay, so you were still kind of straddling both the, the biological engineering and still considering medicine at the time. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I had no good reason to go into either other than the like parental influence. Uh, and I really still then did not know what I want to do with my rest of my life. But I took a, I took a, a major that I think could still lead to a stable job in case I can't decide between either or didn't want to do either. Okay, that, that makes sense. So then how did you make the decision that it was going to be medical school? Well, so that actually has to do with um, what I did after uh, college. So after college, I went to the NIH as part of the IRDA program. I don't even remember what it stands for. It's like intra, intra something. Oh, my God, this is embarrassing. But it's like um, a program where they get uh, fresh out of college people and they get matched with um labs at the NIH. Um, it could be either clinical uh, or it could be uh, research heavy. So I actually joined a research heavy lab where we did translational medicine. And uh, I worked a lot with mice and basically making mouse models to emulate the disease that we were studying at the time. Basically, after two years of doing that, which was very much like a PhD kind of level or, you know, would be PhD kind of level work if I went to a PhD in the same field, I actually 
decided that I hated research. <laughs> I <laughs> I thought research was way it, it was really up to luck. I feel like if your experiment goes well, then lucky you, you get to move on to the next step. If your experiment keeps failing you, then you're stuck at the same place for weeks, months, maybe even years. So I I was like, I don't like the, I guess, the finickiness of lab research. And then I also realized watching the PI of my lab that once you become a PI, you're no longer the person who's in that lab actually doing something. It's like once you get your PhD, you kind of cut back on the actual lab work, which I thought was the interesting part. And you kind of just sit in the office and write grants for the rest of your lab. And yeah, so basically after those two years, I was 100% sure that PhD was not for me. Or research in general, not for me. So it sounds like it was sort of a rewarding experience because you learned what you didn't want to do instead of what you did want to do. Yes. And um, lucky for me, uh, the lab I was in, they also do some clinical medicine too, because the the lab heads were MD PhDs. So um, every now and then I was able to join them when they have like conferences with patients and their family, or just to walk around the hospital and go around the ward. And I think that was far more interesting to me than any of the lab work I've done. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. That, that, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So then going into medical school, and I, I think I've heard you say that you wanted to go into family medicine initially. Mm-hmm. Now, what was what was the draw to that field? Um, so prior to starting medical school, I really haven't had much introduction to the field of medicine as a whole. Um, I know what is what it is like to be a patient of a pediatrician um, as I was growing up, and I knew what the life of an ER doctor was because I did do. I can't even think about it, over a hundred hours volunteering in, in multiple ER departments. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But during that, I, I really kind of liked the patient interaction and the patient relationship that I had with my pediatrician. So I was like, what can I do with that? That's more adult based because I personally don't like kids or babies or <laughs> or any of that. So I was like, family medicine will be a good way to go. I really liked how you interact with them. You tell them what's wrong with you. They listen to you. They, t- they tell you uh, information and give you suggestions. And and the next time you see them, it's not like you're seeing a whole new foreign person. You, you kind of have that patient care continuity, which, and I thought that was great. I, I really had, <laughs> uh, I guess it was kind of like a fake impression of how wonderful it would be to be able to talk to my patients and then tell them how to do like and practice preventive medicine and patients will be great and there will be listening and they'll do things because that's how me and my family were with our doctors we believed everything they said and we did everything they told us to (laughs) so uh that's um that's right. that was my little delusional kind of thinking when I started medicine. I, I want to kind of go through sort of the path from you you thinking you wanted to go into family medicine to pathology because that mm-hmm. seems it, it's it's pretty far from each other as far as medical specialties. Mm-hmm. So can can we kind of go through like what was your thinking and how did you get to pathology? Pathology was not on my radar at all to be honest. After my first 
two years um, in medical school where they did the pathology lectures, I was like, this is such a boring subject. Like, <laughs> the, I was like, the slides <laughs> makes no sense. These pictures makes no sense. I don't see like what's so special about, you know, the pictures they're showing us in the slides. I really care only about like the, the aspects uh, of physiology and treatment and patient management aspect of medical school. Okay. Uh, so even by the time I started clerkships, I had zero interest or knowledge about pathology. And it was actually near the, near the beginning or near the end of MS, I think it's like maybe mid MS three year, we had this, uh, med student and a resident slash fellow uh, mixer that was hosted by the medical school. I mean, it's not really a mixer. It's basically multiple numbers of large round tables. And within each table sits a subspecialty. Um, there's, there's like, for sure, there's like internal medicine, there was cardiology, there was GI, there was radiology, and so on and so forth. And of okay. course, I am a bit introverted. Actually, I can't say I'm a bit. I'm very introverted and I can maintain extroversion um, when needed for a certain amount of time. And of course, when I first started a mixer, I sat in the big tables. I sat in internal medicine. I started in cardiology and I sat on the GI uh, gastroenterology um, and then after that, I was like, these tables were so filled with other med students. Everyone was cramming to say something. And I guess they were trying to impress the residents and fellows in case they they work with them later. And for me, I just felt like I wasn't even able to get a word in. So um, after three rounds of these really intensive tables, I basically, for my fourth round, I was like, I'm, I'm just going to find a table that's basically empty so I could just you know, relax for a bit. And um, so I went to a table that was like that. I saw that there was like two residents there and no other med students. So I just sat down and little did I know that was the pathology table. And of course, pathology table did not get many visitors. I think once the, the session started, there was one other med student that sat down with us. But the, the interesting thing is I, I felt like it was really easy to chat with the pathology residents. And we like quickly turn into like, what was the coolest thing you saw in autopsy? And uh, or what, what is the coolest like thing you saw for like um, a surgical resection and stuff like that? And then we were just talking about it. And I was like, you know, this sounds all very interesting. And that's how my my interest started was actually talking about like grossing and autopsies. So um, what ended up happening was we had a month of electives later in the MS3 year. After doing several rotations in the in MS3 year, of course we were you know doing internal medicine, surgery, the big ones. I I found out very quickly I actually did not enjoy patient interaction. Even though I thought I was gonna I was gonna go family med, I'm gonna love talking to patients. I actually turned out to hate the experience very much. So in addition to, to that, I was like, well, I thought pathology was interesting. And then, of course, everyone was like, oh, if you're going to pathology, you, you'll also be you know, thinking about radiology. And of course, radiology was way more popular than pathology. So I was like, OK, fine, I'll spend my one month doing those two rotations. I did a radiology rotation, then followed by my pathology rotation. So I can say radiology 
to me was one of the most boring things <laughs> I had to sit through. Um, because as messians, you you really didn't get to do much. You just sat in the dark room and you kind of just watched them, the attending and the resident kind of just mumble in the dark. I feel like they never speak up or loudly enough to project to the people sitting in the back. And yeah, I, I have to admit, I definitely fell asleep multiple times during that two week time period. And it was pretty bad. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so yeah, that that was a solidification. I was like, as much as like an introverted experience radiology can be, I, I can't do it. It's 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 the dark and the it was just boring. And then so following that, I did my two week of pathology rotation, and it was like with day one, I I loved everything that they did. I like really, I was like, this is really interesting now that I'm seeing the histology on actual slides through a microscope, because it looks so different than the, those grainy old pictures they they have on the um, the like med school lectures. I also really liked the autopsy part. And I also really like uh, watching the resins growth. Um, I even got to gross a few placentas as a medical student. I was like, wow, this is like, this is fun. And then when um, an autopsy happened, uh, actually at my, at the residence, um, at the pathology department where my med school was, they're actually, they don't do many uh, medical autopsies. It, it would be amazing. Like it, on average, they will have maybe like one to three a month. And the two weeks I was there, there was four. And everyone's like, wow, Cindy, you are such a black cloud. And I was, I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. But I like eagerly helped out with every autopsy that came by. I was like, oh, I'm going to go down and help you. And it was really amazing because it was just like so interesting to see. And then, yeah, so basically, I really loved my two week rotation. And by the middle of it, I was like, this is it. This is this is what I want to do. Okay, I love that. And I, and I have to say, since you said that you you loved uh, that you got to gross a couple of placentas, that's my absolute favorite specimen to gross of all time. So I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I really okay. like grossing. It's it's kind of weird. I think I'm a special breed. Yeah, well. I, you know, maybe that should be a little bit more common. And and, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But mm-hmm. you went into GI pathology. Uh-huh. Uh, you, you did a fellowship and, and now you're an attending. And I'm curious, how did how did you get interested in GI pathology? Oh, yeah. Uh, so my interest in GI pathology developed when I did my one month rotation in my fourth year. Um, uh, and I think I did that month in um, July. I actually did my one month in July. And I, I thought it was the luckiest thing that I, I picked that time period because when I got there, all the P, the PGY1s, they were all getting trained by like the chief residents, by the attending. So they were explaining everything on a very basic level. And I was able to like, you know, work with that. And um, so I felt like I learned faster by, you know, not only by kind of like the indirect teaching provided by all of the attendings, uh, because I remember when I went as an MS3, you know, it was kind of late into the year. The attendings were just kind of signing things out instead of really explaining or talking about cases. So July was a great experience for me. And uh, I guess I, I loved GI because it was the easiest thing for me to pick up. I think by the end of my rotation, I was pretty good at I like saying like TA or HP or like this is completely benign. Um, and it didn't, it also did help that I, I thought colon 
little colon biopsies were the the prettiest things because to me I, I see the little um the crypts as like little patches of flowers on like field and I was like this is such a pretty mm, thing to look okay. at every you know and then you know when something's wrong is when it's no longer looking so pretty <laughs> so uh that's why I really like GI it was something for that I picked up really easily and then it was something I enjoyed looking at Going into residency, I was kind of debating between GI pathology and uh, forensic pathology because, like I said, I really enjoyed being active, involved in autopsies. I really liked that hands-on experience. I I did not find, I guess, a lot of people find cadavers kind of, I guess, it's, it feels weird to them. They rather deal with living humans than deceased humans. And for me, I didn't have mm. that issue. And um, once again, since I was in uh, I was in July, the autopsy attending was teaching the residents how to do autopsies, and they let me help out with the dissection. And I I got really like I was like, wow, this is so interesting, and I it was really fun for me, especially when you can't tell right away when you open the body why this patient died. That that was a really nice experience. But yeah, so that's that was how I went into residency. I was like, hmm, GI pathology or forensic pathology? Okay. And how did you decide between the two? Oh, um, lucky for me, uh, my love for GI kept going <laughs> through my PGY, PGY one year. And I really enjoyed all of, I, I think I did two months of autopsy in my PG1 year as well. And I enjoyed both weeks, but I knew I had to pick a fellowship by the end of my second year, which was so, I thought it was like too quick. Like it's impossible to pick that, that early, but that was, that was mm -hmm. how it was done. And unfortunately for forensics, they don't follow like, you know, summer of your MS3 year. They actually do the match, um, in the spring of your MS2 year. So I was like, okay, I need to make my decision ASAP. So I end up going to the a medical examiner's office for a one month elective. And I, I thought it was a great experience. I learned a lot about the difference between medical autopsies and forensic autopsies and how the focus between medical autopsies and forensic autopsies were so different. I, I thought everybody that went to the ME's office would need an autopsy, but that's not true. Some, if some, if you just get some fluids and test it positive for drugs, they were just like, okay, you know, it's due to this drug and they don't even open the body. Sometimes they'll just read the patient history. It was like, of course, this is a very, this is a well, you know, well, defined reason of death through their charts and so on. Um, but the downside of the ME's office for me was just the, all the bad stuff you see. <laughs> I like, I still, I thought, um, I thought it was really interesting trying to probe the path of a bullet and um, mm -hmm. all the different techniques they did. Like I, I never knew you could dissect the calves to look for DVTs. And when I saw that, I was like, oh my God, I can't wait to take this technique back to, um, to residency and try to do that on, on patients who have suspected DVTs and so on. But it, it ended up being, there was a lot of drownings. There was a lot, I mean, we were in the South side of Chicago. So there was a lot of gunshots and there were so much sad stories. There was one where the dad took a shotgun, killed both his children and then shot himself in the face. So that was like, oh, what was it? Um, murder, suicide. Then we had a case of a drowning of a kid who just fell into a pool. 
And there was a lot of just on, like you see like the dark side of humans when you do medical examiner's office. You know, there was a case where Uh a person was found chopped in half and put in two different containers. And I I was like, how, why? Like, I always like, that's like what things you find in horror movies and it's all truly happening in real life. And for me, I think every, the more days I spend at Emmy's office, I became more and more like emotionally drained. And that, that was the thing my husband saw too. By the end of my rotation, he was like, yeah, you seem to be more like down and just don't just have a lack of empathy towards others now. And I was like, yeah, I think because the things you see at the Emmys, it's just, if you can't separate what you see and do at the Emmys office from your home life, then it's not a, a career that you could really pursue. And that was what my realization was. I was like, well, I guess that rules out forensic pathology for me. And, um, and that's how I picked GI. Okay. I see that, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. This is the people of pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Cindy Wong. We'll be right back. LabVine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop, and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory-specific courses and other resources developed by lab specialists like us for the laboratory industry. LabVine is free to sign up, and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. Okay, whether you're working hard at the grossing bench, the autopsy table, behind a microscope, or any other area of the medical laboratory, there is one thing that we all need. Comfortable scrubs. The scrubs that I wear come from Dressamed. This is a company in California, and they've been making high-quality scrubs since 1980. They have a variety of styles and colors to choose from. As a matter of fact, I just bought a set of the new soft stretch scrubs, and I gotta tell you, they are so comfortable. I might even be wearing them right now. You can check out Dressamed by following the link in the show notes. Oh yeah, and while you're there, make sure you sign up for their loyalty program where every order will earn you points towards special offers and discounts. Now back to Dr. Cindy Wong on the People of Pathology podcast. All right, now I, I want to talk about your YouTube channel, mm. which you started, I guess, in your, it was your last year of residency. Yes. So, so the, all right, so the channel is called H&E Life, which, mm-hmm. all right, first of all, that's that's a very clever title. I like it. How did you pick the title? Oh, how I picked the title? I I was like I, I want the YouTube channel to be some something pathology related. And since I was AP only, I I stared at a lot of H and E slides. So I was like H and E. I wasn't a big YouTube fan at all um, until COVID hit, and when and then I had all this time to do. And people was like, Yeah, there's a lot of cool things on YouTube, and you can learn a lot of stuff. So I started deep diving into YouTube. And I, I found that it was a great way to share medical knowledge and information because I found sites like um, Dr. Mike, I found sites like um, channels like Dr. Dre for dermatology, and I found um, Dr. Mama Jones for gynecology. And there's just all these doctors and radiology and so on, infectious disease, uh, critical care doctors, and they're all sharing all of this knowledge about how their life is. And it, it, it does help like, oh, wow, I didn't know that this was this subspecialty was like this. I mean, even though I already picked pathology, I was like, oh, these are interesting things about these things about these subspecialties when I rotated through as a 
MS3 that I didn't fully appreciate. So it was kind of that kind of inspiration for my channel. So that's why I ended up being like, I want to share more about my life, my my career choices, and of course, knowledge about pathology, not just what pathology is, but also the practice of pathology. So that's how I got the channel name, H&E Life. I didn't want it to be just a H&E teaching channel. I wanted to be like a H&E follow me through my career journey channel. <laughs> oh, okay. I see. So then how, how long, like what was the period of time between when you, you just, you kind of had the idea to start the channel until you actually did it? It's actually quite a while. Um, I had I had the idea in 2020. Like um, I think by the summer of 2020, I was like, you know, I've like seen all these videos about all these sub other different like attendings and all these other fields, and I really don't see any for pathology. And um, at that time, I was uh, starting my like not seriously studying for boards because it's still the summer but i started like trying to find um youtube channels that would teach me pathology for the boards and i i noticed it's a it's a great wealth there's like you know you know jared gardner and there's tafcast and there's all these channels that i find wow like this is really informative it's really good for my board studying but then to me i was like all of these pathology YouTube channels, it means nothing to a medical student because they don't have the knowledge I have after all my years of residency to understand all the things that they're talking about. And that's basically how I got the idea. I was like, there's a huge gap in the pathology YouTube presence. And I think that it's also in Twitter, right? In Twitter, everyone shares cool pathology cases or hard pathology cases. And also the same things on YouTube, they'll share like, um, interesting cases, hard cases, and discussions about like in, in detail discussions about a single entity. But there's no no channel that kind of explains what pathology is and how is it different from medical school lectures. Why going to pathology might suit you, and so on and so forth. And I was like, why is this such a huge gap, and why hasn't anyone taken advantage of this to make? such a channel. And I was like discussing this with some of my co-residents and my friends and they're like, oh yeah, why don't you do it? <laughs> I was like, no, I, I am way too shy and, and <laughs> yeah. I didn't want to do it. I was worried that if I did it, someone like everyone will laugh at me and my channel will get no views. <laughs> so yeah, so it was basically summer of 2020. I had the idea um, and I didn't, of course, act on it until um, spring of 2021. And the only reason I acted, I, I got the motivation to end the confidence to start it was um, because of COVID and recruitment was difficult during um, videos, like everything was on Zoom and recruitment is hard when it's on Zoom because you don't get to see the, the department, the facilities and so on and so forth. So that year, the chiefs thought it was a great idea to make YouTube videos to, you know, share what the art department looks like and how the workflow of the residents are, stuff that they would have seen if they came to our department on a tour during interviews. I was assigned to do the, I was just, and then they, they asked, it's like, do you want to do the in the life of a pathology resident and you want to do the autopsy because I, I, of course I'm like very AP dedicated. So that, I guess that's why they thought I was a good, 
good reason for me to do it. And I did make those videos. I filmed myself. I did a day in the life of me on service. I And then I also did a, a video of me in our autopsy suite going over like what we do during autopsy and so on and so forth. And um, of course, these videos got uploaded to YouTube and uh, it started getting likes and people started commenting. I was like, wow, I, I guess making these janky, poor quality videos is it's still something someone wants to see and people are interested. So that's what basically got me to do the courage to actually start it. Okay. Okay. I like that. That's, that's a good story. And I can, I mean, at starting a, a, this podcast, it, it was kind of similar to that because I'm an introvert as well. And I was, you know, it was like, well, nobody's going to listen and, and what do I, what would I even talk about and, and things like that. So I, I, I get yeah. that part. And I yeah. like the fact that you were, you know, a lot of the videos are like, okay, this is my experience in residency. This is my experience in fellowship and not mm -hmm. with this is, this is, you know, my experience as an attending. Yeah. And so you're very like open and honest in these videos and you talk about your experience in these things. Mm -hmm. And you even talk about like, like salary and things like that. Is that like, are you trying to make it relatable to, like you said, to medical students or people just interested or maybe interested in the pathology field? Is that what you're trying to do with that? Yeah. Um, so I know pathology training and experiences and all of that varies depending on where you train and what you want to do as a career. So that's why I, I always emphasize these are my experiences and it, it might not be the same everywhere. But the reason it goes down back to the core of the reason I started the channel was because I feel like pathology doesn't have much advocacy out there to attract medical students. And and it could be seen when you look at the the ERAS match amount of how little uh, USMD students actually go into pathology versus mm -hmm. all the other subspecialties. I remember when I was in medical school uh, in my year of I think the class was 500. Only two of us went into pathology the rest all went to subspecial surgery and so on and so forth and i was like wow, oh, wow why why is there such a low low interest i think it's just people don't get enough exposure or they get exposure and they, they didn't understand how to how it all relates to the future goal as you know so that was the whole reason i made the channel was to just be the advocate for pathology as a field of medicine and to do that, I feel like I need to present it in a very honest way. I, I shouldn't hide anything because I want to make, I want to tell all of the good as well as the bad so people can make an informed choice when they want to pursue pathology, especially because there's certain, there's uh, many medical schools where they don't have an internal pathology department, so they will never get the experience and they'll never find out. So unless they hear from me or someone who's doing similar things, they they will never understand why they should even think about pathology as a career choice. So that's why I, I feel like I should be honest about my experiences and then people can, you know, really believe the things I say. And I also want the way I, I share everything is because I want transparency. I don't want to sugarcoat it and, you know, cheat people into coming to pathology by telling everyone like the hours are great and you have great work-life balance. I want everyone to know that residency is residency. If you go to pathology residency, it's not going to be like a, a nine to five job. <laughs> I, I also basically, how I get the ideas for my video, it comes down to uh, questions junior residents ask me, and it came down to stuff I wish I knew 
when I was a junior resident or when I was a medical student, like things that will help me make more informed decisions than me just being like, okay, I'm, I'm going to do this. All right. I, I guess this next step is this and so on and so forth. Okay. I like that. And I especially like the, the advocacy part that you mentioned earlier. That's, mm -hmm. that's really important. You know, one of your, or one, one of uh, your, your videos so far that I think is my favorite is one you called your unpopular opinions. Yeah. And, in that one, one of your unpopular opinions is the importance of grossing. Now, of course, I'm, I'm a pathologist assistant, so uh -huh. obviously grossing is what I do. So it's important to me. Right. But I can you can you tell me from from your your perspective why is it important to you? So the reason it's important to me because I feel like you cannot be you could be an adequate pathologist without being good at grossing, but I can't, I don't think you could be a superior pathologist without knowing how to gross because the gross correlation to your slide correlation and to your diagnosis is super important. And I think that is lost a lot of times in the more modern style of pathology training. And of course, it's also the on the unflattering thing in pathology, right? Grossing, even though that's not what the word grossing means, it's it's a gross thing to do for a lot of people. And, you know, it's also very dangerous. You could get exposed to all these fluids and chemicals and so on mm -hmm. and so forth. But, but for me, if you did not see the specimen and you did not gross it adequately, and then you go to the attending and then try to sign it out. It's very hard because the attending will come back to you. It's like, okay, well, what did this look like? Or how, how it looked like, even though there was no tumor mass, but did it feel firm at this area once really close to the margin? And all these questions that it's very important to make a proper cancer diagnosis on the resection specimen. If you didn't gross it or you didn't, or if you did gross it and you didn't care and just grossed it really fast, then a lot of information gets missed. And usually what happens is the attending will be like, all right, go back to Groves, submit these more, you know, these more cassettes, or they'll be like, okay, I, I don't know what's happening. So they'll go with you to look at the specimen and so on. And I feel like if residents understood how important being able to gross and being able to gross well me, makes for the end diagnoses, if the, the gross specimen did not get gross properly and comes out, it will be not a adequately, it will not be adequate for us to make a, a very fully detailed report. So mm -hmm. it comes in every, and, and that's why for me, it was very, very important. I, I feel like as, especially as academic pathologist, not even academic, especially if you're a pathologist that sign out complicated specimens, if you don't know how to work with a gross specimen uh, read a gross gross description and recreate that specimen in your mind as you're looking through the slides and correlate that with the what you actually see on the slides, then you are not going to be able to do the best job you can of coming up with a diagnosis and staging and all of that, which is very you know important to patient prognosis. So that's why yeah. I think grossing is super important. And I'm so sad that more places are like, oh yeah, we don't want to gross too much. So we're going to cut your grossing responsibilities and so on. Uh -huh. And now newer med students are going into residency with expectation of, well, it's, it's the slide, it's the, the slides. That's the most important thing. Grossing doesn't really, it's just a, a, a job, a grunt work that I have to do for the hospital. And that's so not true. <laughs> 
Yeah, I totally agree. And I feel like, you know, GI pathology is one of those where maybe the grossing is even more important. Like you think about the complexity of like a Whipple specimen. Yeah. And if you don't, if you don't understand, if you can't like recreate that sort of 3D image from the gross description, you've got a big problem. Oh, yeah. Or if you gross it so bad and you, and then the attending can't even salvage it because you lost a margin or oh God knows who what else. And then, it's, of course, it's never going to be the, the resin's fault when the hammer comes down from the surgeons. Like, why did you mess up my specimen? It's going to be blaming the attending, of course. Right. Yeah, of course. Okay. I like that. I like, yeah, grossing, I think, I mean, I mean obviously I'm biased, but yeah, I think it should be more important than it it seems to be these days. The other thing is um, I don't think a lot of residents understand that you grossing is not going to go away after residency. <laughs> like even if you, if you went to academics, sure, you will have PAs and uh, techs and residents doing most of the grossing. But when a complicated specimen happens that even the PA can't handle, who who has who makes the final decision is the attending. And as the attending, if you can't adequately help the PA or the residents grows to the to the best of the ability, then that it's like, what are you doing as an attending? And then the other thing is even people who go into private practice jobs, they're like, oh yeah, I'm just gonna sign out cases at private practice jobs. A good portion of them, you have to gross your own specimens because a private practice ones, they they might not have a sufficient PA staff that will gross all the specimens. So I think that might come to a shocker for a lot of these residents who are like, ah, grossing is not important. And then they realize they have to do it for their job. And then I bet they wish they paid more attention or did better <laughs> during residency. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. I, I, sometimes I'll, I'll say to residents like, okay, you might not, like you said, you might not have to be doing grossing where you're, you're going to be working eventually, but you're going to have people like me that are going to, that will be asking you questions and you, you better know the answer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, you know, an, another one of your videos, you, you talk about myths about pathology, which mm -hmm. I've done one or two episodes of this podcast about that, that same thing. And I'm curious what do you think pathology as a whole can do to finally get rid of some of these myths? Well, I, I think maybe having more pathologists do channels like mine. Um, I think the biggest okay. issue with pathology is that there's not enough advocacy for pathology and what it really means to practice pathology because, you know, it's not the same as the pathology you learn in MS2 year. And uh, I think the other thing is, I, and I, is, it's just, there's this negative connotation about pathology because on social media, actually it's just student doctor network. I don't know if you've heard about this. It's like a forum and it's one of the most toxic places I could think of, but a lot of med students still use that to discuss what they should do, how they should pick residency and so on. And I've seen the pathology, overall pathology forum, and there are just so many jaded attendings that are posting. They're like, they're, they're saying like, oh, I can't, I can't wait to quit. Or like, I, I don't get pay, like pay is so bad now and, and so on and so forth. So when you have all these negative rumors floating around in social media, which is, you know, readily available to any person, then these myths get perpetuated and we need more effort on the social media side to debunk these myths. And I know a lot of people have written 
papers about these, like uh, to medical journals. And I've read these papers and the paper, the, they detail it very well. They detail all of the, you know, what a pathology residency is like, what pathologists do, the, the myths and debunking it. But of course, they, they wrote it into a, a medical paper for a journal. I don't know how many read the, like how many med students are going to read that paper because it was a beautiful written paper. But if you don't have an audience to read it, then your message will never get you know, get spread out. So I think that's, that's the only way to, to kind of debunk the myths and pathology is that there's just need to be more representation of pathologists as what they actually do as, as in their practice. And, and I, 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 my, for me, I think a pathologist's role is the doctor's doctor, because we're so, we're kind of like the, in the background telling doctors the information they need to actually practice the medicine that they do. And without having more public, you know, advocacy or uh, public displays of what happens, then these myths will just keep perpetuating. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I, I think you're definitely right. There, there certainly needs to be more uh, advocacy and especially, you know, the kinds of things that you're doing on your YouTube channel. Do you feel like, though, you know, having done the channel for it's been what over a year now that you've kind of helped people to understand pathology better or maybe kind of turn them onto the field when they might not have known about it before? Because it seems like you get a lot of comments on on most of the videos mm -hmm. in, in that regard and people asking questions do you think you've influenced some people that way i don't know if, if i done the 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 most important goal of my life is to to teach uh medical students who have no idea what pathology is and have them go into pathology residency but i i mean the first year i did it it was like, okay, I'm just going to keep doing these videos. I don't know what impact I'm having. But it was very interesting that this um, past July, when the first batch of um, uh, PGY1s came in through our department, there was a, a couple of them who was like, who like saw me when I was giving a tour and they're like, oh my God, you're H&E Life. And I was like, yeah, that's me. And it's like, oh, they're like, oh, I love your channel. Your channel was great. And so I guess when that happens, I get reassurance that like what I'm doing is actually making a difference. Um, mm -hmm. How much of a difference it makes to every level, I, I'm not sure. Like I, sometimes I feel like a lot of the people who ask questions are international students instead of like USMD graduates, who was my primary audience goal that I was hoping to get. But on, but honestly, I feel like if if more people want to do pathology residency, then maybe other people will start wondering, like, why, you know, why is there so many people going to pathology? So that will get them interested in the future. But yeah, I think, um, I mean, I think it's making a difference. <laughs> okay. That, that, that's got to be cool to have people recognize you like that. Yeah, no, it's it's so strange. Yeah, I had a rotating resident that came and do uh, a week with me on GI. And uh, the, uh, on the first day, he was like, you know, your voice sounds very familiar. I was like, oh yeah. Um, he's like, are uh, do you do you have a YouTube channel? I was like, yeah, that yeah. And it's like, oh man, you're H and E life. Yeah. I was like, yeah. <laughs> so it's like it's it's shocking. Like the more, I guess, more I interact with um more like fresh residents, the more I'm like, mm -hmm. okay, I guess I my channel actually has a pretty big impact on the incoming years. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's that's got to be a great feeling. Yeah.
Yeah. Okay. The the last thing I wanted to ask you about uh, is kind of your other main interest, which is baking. And I'm curious, oh. like, how'd you get into that? And uh, th- then I want to I want to know, like, do you think it's important to have interests that are outside of medicine? Yeah. Um, so baking is something I've had interest in since even before medical school. Uh, the story behind that is actually quite embarrassing. The first time I ever baked was for like a Valentine's Day present for my boyfriend while we were in college. And I had no idea what I was doing. And everything came out to be this horrible mess of a, of a thing. And, you know, <laughs> my boyfriend was very nice and I'd be like, mm, this is really good. But, you know, I tasted it. I was like, <laughs> okay. this is, this is garbage. And, um, that was in my senior year of college. And then once I started at NIH, I, you know, of course I earned a little income then, then I was like, okay, you know what? I did have fun baking, even though it turned out to be a disaster. Maybe I'll try dabbling again. And, um, and then it just came like d- I like started maybe the first time it was like, eh, but by the second time I was like, wow, the results, this tastes delicious. Um, it's actually really cute. The second time I actually baked out of, um, the second time I baked after I graduated college, I made these um, cupcakes with cream cheese frosting and I brought them to work and I shared them with my friend, uh, then friend, now husband. <laughs> and the minute he took a bite and he was like, Oh, marry me. And I was like, Oh, I guess, I guess I'm doing a great job. So that's how, that's basically how it started. And yeah, so I've been baking ever since then. And I have to say fellowship and being an attending really took a, 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 like a dip in my baking time. And I think I'm just doing less of it, but it's definitely something I really am interested in. And I always thought after I retire, maybe I'll open a bakery. <laughs> so that's like, that's like Sounds my tentative end goal in life. Okay. And yeah. do you think like, like having a separate interest from medicine, like, is that like, does that help you unwind or kind of, I don't know, decompress or, what, oh, or something like that? Oh yeah, for sure. I, I actually made a, a, a video about like why you, it's important to have other things in your life um, outside of residency and, and, you know, how it helps to decompress But I feel like because it wasn't a pathology related video, it didn't get much traction. So I really think having interests outside medicine is super important. Um, unfortunately going through medical school, going through residency, it takes up so much of your life and it's hard to balance, um, personal life and work life because work life is more than 50% of your, you know, everyday living hours and having interest outside of it kind of helps you de-stress after it. It's, if it's something you enjoy doing, even if you have a really bad day at work and you come home and you enjoy drawing or painting if you could you know spend 30 minutes just doing that it will bring more calm for you there was definitely times where I got stressed out and I just was like okay I came home I'm gonna make a batch of cookies and I bring the cookies in the next day everyone has some they're always telling me oh these cookies are delicious and that kind of brought joy and I was like okay okay yesterday was a bad day but today's a good day (laughs) I like it. It's a great way to end the day with with a batch of cookies. That, yeah. that I think that's a that's a great way to end this conversation. Also, Doc, Dr. Wong, this has been really interesting. I'm gl- glad we got the chance to talk, and I uh, appreciate getting to learn more about you. I'll definitely include a link to your YouTube channel in the show notes for this episode. Oh, yeah. Dr. Cindy Wong, thank you very much.
Thank you so much. This has been such a, this might have been my pleasure to do this actually. Well, thank you so much. If you're looking for another episode of the People of Pathology podcast to check out after this one, here's a clip from my interview with Dr. Andrea Dayrup, where we talk about race in medicine and her work with Robin's basic pathology and Robin's essential pathology. Once evolutionary biology was in my rearview mirror and I was focused on medical research, I didn't really think about it very much. I didn't do a lot of reading on it. Uh, There's some really interesting books that I've been reading recently, like uh, Sapiens, which talks a lot about uh, sort of the more recent uh, human evolutionary biology. But I didn't really think about it very much. I was focused on what I was doing. But one of the things that I, I like about uh, my life is that I've done so many different things, but even when something's in the rearview mirror, it's still visible. So as I became more and more focused on uh, race-based medicine and looking at the issue of uh, geographic ancestry and how that related to uh, how we discuss socially defined race, to be able to bring back what I, I knew about evolutionary biology and to thereby communicate effectively with uh, Dr. Joseph Graves Jr., who's the evolutionary biologist with whom I'm doing a lot of collaborations these days. You can hear more from Dr. Andrea Dayrup in episode 105. All right, great big thanks to Dr. Cindy Wong. This was a really fun conversation for me, so I'm really glad we were able to do this. And I encourage you to go and check out the YouTube channel H&E Life. There's lots of good stuff there. I think it any stage of your career. I mean, some of it is focused towards medical students, but there is a lot of content for residents also. I mean, she has a video that's all about how you can impress your attendings as a resident. And I think overall, it's just a really good behind the scenes look at what it's like to be a practicing pathologist. So you can find a link to H&E Life in the show notes. Don't forget, you can follow this show on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at People of Path, or you can just connect with me on LinkedIn. Thanks for continuing to share the show with others. Together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. You can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network. And while you're there, you can check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Dennis Strank, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.